Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would be all in all to us. What would we do if you had not called us out from among the nations, gathered us to yourself, and then gathered us here together as a people? We are so grateful that we have each other and that we have this church and this great work of the kingdom that you've put before us. Father, I pray that what we do here this morning will be an answer to the call you've put on our lives, that your word would sound forth, that it would resonate in our hearts, and that we would go forth and do what you have commanded. So we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants is that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Two stories this week in the wide world of sports uh, captured the nation's attention. Neither of them really had anything to do with sports per se. Rather, both of them were featuring men who were sports stars who failed to bow the knee to the gods of the marketplace. On Tuesday, National Hockey League player Ivan Proporov declined to participate in his team's pre-game pride celebration, which involved players wearing rainbow jerseys and um, swinging around uh, rainbow decorated hockey sticks. Reporters asked him afterwards why he didn't participate. He said, I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and to my religion. That's all I'm going to say. And they asked him, well, what was his religion? He said, Russian Orthodox. In response to this, there was like a total meltdown. Journalists and talking heads were calling for Proporov to be benched and not allowed to play anymore. Uh, one Canadian journalist went on a rant that was uh, going around online, and I, I listened to what he said. One of the things he said was, nothing scares me more than any human being who says, I'm not going to do this because of my religious beliefs, end quote. Then this journalist called on the NHL to attack what Proporov did and to fine his team $1 million for his insolence in failing to honor LGBTQ identities. That was just on Tuesday. On Wednesday, Tony Dungy, name that we all recognize, former coach of the Indianapolis Colts, now a commentator for the NFL, uh, he wrote a social media post online lampooning a school district that was about to install feminine hygiene project, uh, products in boys' bathrooms. And they were planning to do this to accommodate the transgender students at their school. Tony Dungy threw a flag and since then, he has been raked over the proverbial coals for being anti-trans and anti-gay. And there was a journalist in the Indianapolis Star who linked Tony Dungy's words to that which causes LGBTQ youth to um, take their own lives. Wrote a whole column on this. You can read it online right now. This is what the journalist said. He said, people who think like Dungy, us, Tend to think, uh, tend, uh, they tend to offer a pious smile and assure us that they love all people. Hate the sin and not the sinner, right? The LGBTQ community must feel awfully loved by folks who openly hate 
who they are. End quote. Now, of course, Dungy doesn't hate homosexuals, but that doesn't stop this writer from lying and saying that he does. There it is. And as I watched all of this vitriol pour down on Proporov and on Dungy this week, it reminded me that there's going to be a cost for all of us who follow Christ and who don't bow the knee to LGBTQ propaganda. But it also reminded me of how self-righteousness inhibits self-examination. Many of those who were denouncing these two men over the week spoke with a kind of a certainty just like a fundamentalist about how despicable they, th they found Proporov and Dungy to be. And you don't get the sense in listening to them that they've spent really much time at all examining themselves and their own beliefs. Uh, you don't get the sense that they are self-aware enough to consider the fact that everyone in the history of the world until about 20 years ago, and even you know, not even that long ago when we're talking about transgenderism, everybody in the history of the world except for the last 20 years or so in certain privileged nations of the West has agreed with Tony Dungy and Ivan Proporov. You don't get the sense at all that they've examined themselves closely enough to see just how parochial their own views actually are. What happens to a people who become so enamored with evil that they can no longer see the truth? They can't see the truth because they can't tolerate the truth. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans says, and they fabricate all kinds of irrational justifications for evil. And if anyone opens up even a flicker of light from the truth, they rant and they rave and then they shout people down. And the last thing that they do is engage in self-examination because they're too certain of their own righteousness for that. Now, the danger of being unable to self-examine is not just a problem that happens out there, although we see it all the time. It's also a problem that's in here too, in the church, among us. How many of you, if you were honest, know that sometimes you have been unwilling to self-examine yourself? How many of you have ever become reluctant to look at yourself in the mirror because you're just too afraid of what you will find there? You don't want to face it. You don't want to have to face strongholds of sin in your life because it's just too humiliating or because it would just require too much of you. You kind of enjoy certain sins anyway. Well, if that is you, then you will find that the text that we're looking at this morning is for you. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 5 through 7. We're just going to be looking at three verses, verses 5 through 7. A text that declares in bold letters right up front, examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Paul's addressing a Corinthian church where false teachers had infiltrated the congregation and had persuaded at least some of the people away from Paul and his teaching and toward themselves and their own false teaching. Under the influence 
of these false teachers, at least some of the believers in Corinth had begun to look with suspicion at Paul, whether he was truly an apostle, or to put it in Paul's words, if you're looking at verse 3, whether Christ truly speaks in and through Paul. They're questioning all of that. But rather than Paul submitting to their unrighteous examination, Paul is going to turn it around on them and command them to examine themselves. And in that way, his challenge to the Corinthians really becomes a challenge to all of us. He's calling us to examine ourselves. And so the exhortation this morning is examine yourselves. And he's going to lead us through this in three different ways. Examine yourselves, number one, whether you are in the faith, in verse 5, whether you accept God's word, in verse 6, and then whether you walk in righteousness, in verse 7. So examine yourselves, verse 5, whether you're in the faith, verse 6, whether you accept God's word, and verse 7, whether you walk in righteousness. So the first thing here is to examine yourselves, whether you are in the faith. Everybody look at verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the test? Now, notice the emphatic nature of Paul's exhortation. He essentially repeats it twice. He says, examine yourselves, and then he says, test yourselves. Now, that word that's translated as examine means something like to endeavor to discover the nature or character of something by testing. Trying to figure out what something really is by testing it. Likewise, the word that's rendered as test towards the end of the verse means something like to make a critical examination of something to determine its genuineness. You see this word used over and over in the New Testament to find the proof or the genuineness of something. And what are we testing for here? Well, Paul says, test yourselves whether you are in the faith. There's some question commentators raise about what it means to be in the faith. Some, some commentators suggest that in the faith refers to holding to right doctrine so that this would become like a self-examination concerning one's orthodoxy or right belief. Other people think that it refers simply to just trusting in Christ. Test yourselves to see if you're really trusting in Christ. But, but I don't think that's, that's what Paul is, is getting at here. In this text, Paul's using the word faith more expansively to refer to the whole Christian way and truth. Something like true piety or genuine devotion. So when Paul says to them to examine themselves, to see whether they are in the faith, he's essentially telling them to examine themselves whether they are truly Christian. Now, why would this even be a question for the Corinthians? Well, if you've been here for our study through 2 Corinthians, you kind of already know what's going on with, with the Corinthians. For starters, one reason this would be a question is because they were too much under the sway of false teachers. You will remember in chapter 11, in verse 4, what Paul says. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed... Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul says there's guys coming in here preaching a different gospel, different Jesus. At least some of them 
are going along with it. That's a problem. Also, Paul has already expressed concern about some of them engaged in sexual immorality. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, the passage right before this one. Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of impurity, immorality, and sensuality, which they have practiced. So you've got the false teachers, you've got sexual immorality. And then finally, some of these folks are even calling into question whether or not Paul speaks for Christ. We saw that in verse 3, where Paul says, you're seeking proof. And he's using the same language that you see in verse 5. Test yourselves, examine yourselves. That second testing word there, it's the same word. Looking for proof. You're looking for proof that Christ is speaking in me. So they've got, the Corinthians have all these problems in their midst, and yet they have the unmitigated gall to question whether Paul is the real thing or not. As if Paul himself needs to be examined. And so that's why Paul is saying, look, you don't need to be examining me and whether or not I'm a real apostle. You need to be examining yourselves to see if you are really even in the faith at all. If there's a problem here, Paul's saying, it's not me, it's you. So Paul says, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves or... Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So Paul's expectation is that they are going to recognize that Christ does indeed dwell within them, which really, when you think about it, it's kind of an amazing statement to make because he's expressing a kind of confidence in the Lord's work in them in spite of all the problems that are happening among them. Nevertheless, he adds this one note of contingency at the end. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. <coughs> Excuse me. If there are any among them who think that they know Christ and yet they persist in following false teachers. Excuse me. If they, if they persist in following false teachers, persist in immorality, persist in questioning God's word through Paul, if that's what they're doing, he's saying they need to be questioning whether or not they've ever really come to know Christ in the first place. Whether they realize it or not, their behavior has put a big question mark over their faith and they need to be self-aware enough to put themselves to the test rather than trying to put Paul to the test. Now, there are, you know this, some people in the world who are confident that they are Christians, maybe because of their parents were Christians or because they were baptized as an infant or because they walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. They have, they have all this confidence, and yet in their lives, their persistent rebellion against God gives them no basis for that kind of assurance. These are the kinds of people that Paul is trying to challenge in this text. Now, as I say all of this, I already know that some of you in this room are listening to these words and they're landing on you like the weight of the world. You've placed your trust in Christ. You're a member in good standing, perhaps here at Kenwood, regular attender here at the church with God's people. You're imperfectly, 
but sincerely trying to walk with Christ, and yet <coughs> you labor under a very heavy, heavy burden. You struggle with having assurance of your salvation. No matter what you do or how hard you try, you just feel like you can't really ever be sure. And maybe sometimes, at really low points, you wrestle with the despair whether your prayers even go through the ceiling, much less whether they make it all the way up to heaven where God is. I know that there are some of you who struggle this way because this was my own struggle at different times in my life. I've already shared some of the stories with you over the years of, of what I went through through college, especially uh, in, in that time period. So I'm not going to rehearse all of that here this morning, but I was reminded of this, this again just um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, some of you know that my best friend's son was um, tragically killed um, right before Christmas, and we had a memorial service uh, right after New Year's here in Louisville. It just so happened that uh, my, my best friend, we grew up together in South Louisiana, and we were at the memorial service here in Louisville, and who walks in but a guy that we grew up with in our house in South Louisiana. And that guy that walks in, as soon as I see him, always reminds me of his dad, because his dad was one of our pastors, the church we grew up in. And my mom and dad set up a meeting with me and his dad when I was in junior high, because I was laboring mightily with the assurance of my salvation. And he met with me and talked with me and prayed with me. So that struggle began for me at a very young age after my conversion. And I know that many of you have known that struggle too. And when you hear a message and an exhortation like the one that Paul is giving, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, you're like, I'm always doing that. And I never can figure out whether I'm, I'm in the fa I, I I can never land on assurance. And so you hear that, <coughs> and dark clouds start rolling in over your soul. And it just makes you feel kind of hopeless, like there's no way that you can ever have your heart settled and at peace. If that's you, I have a couple of words for you right now, and then I'm going to have a, a few more words for you at, at the end of, of the message. But the first thing I want to say is that Paul is aiming this exhortation, examine yourselves, not at the bruised reed who's trying to walk with Christ, <laughs> coming to church, availing himself of the means of grace, doing his imperfect best to listen to the word, obey the word, repent when he fails, trying to love God and his people the best he knows how. That's not really who Paul's aiming at here. Paul's aim is that those who are confidently asserting their own spiritual bona fides while questioning Paul's, following false teachers, walking in immorality, that's who Paul is trying to confront in this text. So if you're here today, you're here this morning, and you feel like the bruised reed who's just always constantly struggling with assurance while you're trying to walk with Christ, and yet laboring under this burden, I don't, I don't think either Paul nor Jesus are here to crush you or, or to add to your weight. Isaiah 42.3, a bruised wheat reed he will not break. In a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So, so if that's you, the message for you is probably not more self-examination, but more Christ-examination. You need to get your eyes off of yourself and put them on Christ. You've heard 
that it was said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. The Bible says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. You need to look at Christ and you need to believe those words. And don't go down the, the swirling hole of despair. This is the second thing that I would say to the bruised reeds. Your salvation does not hang upon the strength of your faith, but upon the strength of Christ. There's a Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson, who said, said it this way in 1660. He said, a weak faith may receive a strong Christ. A weak hand can tie the knot in marriage as well as a strong. A weak eye might have seen the brazen serpent. The promise is not made to strong faith, but to true. The promise doth not say, whosoever hath a giant faith that can remove mountains, that can stop the mouth of lions, shall be saved. But whosoever believes, be his faith never so small. End quote. Another Puritan pastor, Stephen Sharnock, said it this way in 1680. A want of assurance is not unbelief. Drooping spirits may be believers. There is a manifest distinction between faith in Christ and the comfort of that faith. Between believing to eternal life and knowing that we have eternal life. There is a difference between a child's having a right to an estate and his full knowledge of the title. End quote. I'm going to say more about this at the end, but in the meantime... I just want you, those of you in this situation, to be comforted that your lack of assurance is no sign by itself that you aren't saved. You aren't the first child of God to labor under this burden and you're not going to be the last. You need to rest assured that your little mustard seed faith is enough to connect you to Christ. You may feel like you're hanging on by, by a very thin thread, but Christ takes your weak, thin thread of faith and makes it stronger than an oak and makes it unbreakable. It's not your connection that keeps you connected. It's his connection. It's him. It's not about how you have laid hold of him, but about how he has laid hold of you. So that's my word to the bruised reeds this morning who are hearing, examine yourselves and they're just despairing over that. I don't think this word from Paul has really mainly the bruised reeds in his sights. He has another kind of group entirely in mind when he says examine yourselves. He has his sights on those who are foolishly throwing in with false teachers, with sexual immorality, and with attacks on Paul's apostleship. So if you are here this morning and you are walking high-handedly in what you know to be sin, you are the kind of person that Paul has his sights on in this text. You need to examine yourself. God aims to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted who are not walking with him. And if that's you, you need to feel the affliction of these words. You need to examine yourself. So the question is, well, how do, you, how do you test yourself? How do you examine yourself? 
What kind of self-examination should you be undergoing? Well, that's what the next two verses are all about. So examine yourself, first of all, whether you're in the faith, but then examine yourself, verse 6, whether you accept God's word. Everybody look at verse 6. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Now, the key to understanding what Paul is saying in verse 6 is that it has to be interpreted in light of verse 5. So think about what Paul just said. Verse 5 calls for the Corinthians to examine themselves. And now in verse 6, he says that I hope that one result of your self-examination will be a reevaluation of how you view me. That's what Paul's getting at here. Now remember the we there in verse 6. So he says in verse 6, I hope you'll find out that we have not failed the test. Remember the we is Paul's way of saying I. He's using that apostolic plural that he uses sometime. And so his hope is that they'll discover that Paul has not, quote unquote, failed the test. The test that actually they, that was mentioned in verse 3. You remember in verse 3 from the last time, he points out that they're seeking proof. It's the uh, same word group there. They're seeking proof that Christ speaks in him. Now in verse 6, he's saying that I hope you don't find in me a lack of proof. That's what he means by fail the test. Same word group. So it's hard to show this in English, but verse 3 is connecting to verse 6 in that both are talking about examining Paul for proof of his apostleship. And Paul says, I hope that your self-evaluation leads to a different evaluation of, of me, your apostle. Instead of questioning your apostle and following these false teachers, I hope that you'll hear me for who I am. So the issue is really simple here. If they reject Paul, then they are rejecting the word of God, period. The false teachers claim that Christ doesn't speak through Paul. The reality is that Christ does speak through Paul. The Corinthians will either believe the word of the false teachers or they will believe the word of God coming through Paul. They will either recognize and submit to the word of God or they won't. And there's not an in-between position here. So one part of the self-examination is this. Do you recognize and accept the word of God for what it is? Or do you war against the word of God in your own heart and resent it and hold it in contempt? One of the, the marks of an authentic Christian is that he recognizes the word of God as the ultimate authority over his life. When he hears the Bible, he obeys the Bible. When he disobeys the Bible, he still, nevertheless, realizes that it's God's word that he's defying. And he will eventually come back to it as such in repentance. A true Christian is indwelt by the spirit of God who enables him to recognize and to submit to the word of God for what it is. Paul says it this way in his first letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what? But for what it really is, the word of God. When I preach to you, Paul says, you received it not as man's word, but as God's word. 
which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, I personally professed faith in Christ as my Lord and Savior when I was nine years old. I was baptized shortly after that. And one of the first things I can remember that changed in my little heart as a nine-year-old was a new disposition towards the Word of God. I remember very distinctly one night sitting in my bedroom as a nine-year-old, looking at the shelf with my Bible on it and wanting to know it. It was that simple. I didn't really feel like that before, but I wanted to know it. It was a hardback King James Version. And as a nine-year-old, I didn't know what to do much with a hardback King James Version. And nobody was telling me what to do. So I just picked up and I started reading in the beginning. And I'll be honest, I didn't get very far with King James as a nine-year-old. Wasn't that competent with uh, Elizabethan English to, to, to get through it. It would be some time before I got my hands on a, a more modern translation that I could understand and really read for myself. But I'll, I'll say this. For me, without question, all of the major growth in my life as a Christian has come as a result of my interface with the Word of God. Either in sitting under the preached Word week after week in church or in reading it on my own. The Word of God is the cornerstone of our discipleship. This is why Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God in Matthew 4, 4. It's why the psalmist said, your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you, Psalm 119, 11. What comes first? It's a treasuring in the heart that springs forth in a trans transformation of the life. Psalmist also writes, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 103. An authentic believer is someone whose heart needs the word of God, longs for the word of God. A believer could be neglectful of his duties for a season, may even quench the spirit by being negligent towards the word, but his heart cannot sustain that indifference indefinitely. He will eventually, out of discipline or desperation or both, he will eventually hearken back to the voice of his Savior. And he will say, like Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's how the believer feels about the Word of God. I have to have this. And there's nowhere else for me to go. So to any person in the room, room who finds himself in the position of the, of the prodigal, running away from what he knows God has called him to be and to do, someone sort of like what some of these Corinthians were doing and being neglectful of the word of God, coming to them through the apostle, any of you in that position, how long are you going to go on like this? How long can you go on like this? You know what the Word of God is. You know what it says. But you would rather have your own way. And perhaps you are manufacturing justifications for your indifference. And the longer you go, the more you are going to need to examine yourself and ask, do I even know Christ at all? If the Word of God means so little 
to me, then does the Spirit of God have any place in me at all? Those are the kinds of questions that you need to be asking yourself. So examine yourselves whether you're in the faith and examine yourselves whether you accept God's word. And then finally, examine yourselves whether you walk in righteousness. Everybody look at verse 7. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Now notice that verse 6 expresses the object of Paul's hope that they would recognize that Christ speaks through him. And now verse 7 is expressing the object of Paul's prayer that they would do no wrong and that they would do what is right. So you have to see that his prayer in verse 7 is right in line with the hope that he expresses in verse 6. He wants them not only to recognize God's word for what it is, verse 6, but also he wants them to obey God's word by turning away from evil and by doing what is right, verse 7. Paul adds two qualifying statements to this. Turn from evil, do what is right. Two qualifying statements. And the first one is this. He says, not that we may appear to have met the test, which means not that I may appear to have passed your examination of me. And so Paul's saying that he's praying for them to forsake evil, embrace the good, not simply so that he can be vindicated and enhance his own reputation among them. That, that's not the point. One commentator says it this way. Paul is therefore less concerned to appear as a tried and true apostle than that the Corinthians proved to be tried and true Christians by resisting all evil, end quote. So what he's trying to say in that phrase, this is just Paul saying that, look, none of this is ultimately about me. I'm not saying I want you to avoid evil, embrace the good, you know, just so I can be proved right or... or, or, or be seen to have met some test that you've put to me. It's about whether or not Christ is going to be Lord of them. That, that's what the whole thing is about. The second qualifying statement is right there at the very end of the verse where he says, though we may seem to have failed, by which he means though I may seem to have failed in your eyes. It may not be the clearest translation of what Paul really means here. Paul's using... Again, a variation on this Greek term, dokimos. Uh, Paul uses this term, dokimos, six times from verses 3 to verse 7. Variations on that term. And each time that term is referring to being proven or unproven after a test. And here at the end of verse 7 is the sixth and final use of the term. And he's saying, I want you to be walking away from evil, walking in truth, even if I have yet to prove myself to you in person by some personal demonstration of power. You remember in our previous message where Paul said, when I come to you, I'm not going to spare anybody. Nobody's going to be able to escape the inevitability of the apostolic thunder that I'm about to bring. You remember that? So even though that hasn't happened yet, I still want you, even now, short of me having come and proven this apostolic demonstration of power, I still want you to turn away from evil and walk in the truth before any of that happens. That, that's what he means when he says, what your translation says, um, even though we may seem to have failed. It means I have yet to prove, give this proof to you. He wants them to do the right thing long before he gets there. 
But here's the thing. He's expecting them to walk away from sin, to walk in righteousness, or they will face discipline when he comes. And so one of the ways that they need to examine themselves is whether they have repented of their sin and walked in the truth. That, that's what he's getting at here. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4-6. through 6, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You say you're a Christian, it ought to be reflected in your life. If it's not reflected in your life, you're lying. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot practice sin because he is born of God. So it's not just knowing the word, verse 6. It's doing the word, verse 7. That's the real evidence that you are in the faith. Again, it's not that people never sin after they come to Christ. It's not perfection in your life, but the direction of your life that reveals what you really are. And if you're content to live your life in open contempt of God and His Word and His ways, you really should examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Do you remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He spoke in these kinds of terms about how his disciples would be manifest in their doings. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who says they follow me as Lord. It's not just saying that you follow me as Lord that reveals who you are. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's who reveals who you are. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Notice it's not really fruit of the spirit type things there, but all these acts of power. True nature of the spirit, it could be a transformation of character. None of that's listed here. Didn't we do all these things? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and yet it did not fall. For it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The point is, it's the doing and the practicing and the acting and the not acting that reveal who you really are. And so you can test yourselves here. Test yourselves whether you're in the faith, whether you accept God's word, and then finally, whether you walk in righteousness. These things are going to point to whether or not there's a reality of faith in your life. So for those of you who are here and who know that you have been running from Christ and His Word and running towards your sin, you need to examine yourself. You really do. If after hearing a message 
like this, you feel like you're doing just fine, thank you. And like you could be a happier Christian without all this attentiveness to God's word and holiness, then it may very well be that you are failing the test. And you need to repent of your sin and you need to believe in Christ and you need to be saved. If you think yourself a Christian, you're kind of walking away from God's word like that. You're living with a false assurance. Your assurance needs to be broken up. There can be no assurance where there is an open and unrepentant contempt for God's word and God's ways. But I trust that for most of you in this room, that's not where you are. Even for some of you who, who may be cherishing some open or secret sin in your life, you're hearing this message and you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God on your life. And you know that that nagging feeling in your conscience, which you've not been able to suppress completely, it's been right all along. And that grief that you feel over all of it is very likely the grieving of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. And if that is you, then the best thing for you to do is simply to come home. You repent of your sin. You name it. You confess it to whoever you need to confess it to and you come home and you don't delay. I trust that for most of you, that would be the case. Now, I said earlier that I wanted to give one final word to the bruised reeds among us who are hearing all of this and who are feeling the clouds gathering over them. I just want to say to you, listen, you don't, you don't need to go there. Don't trust your fears. You trust in Christ. You need to put one foot in front of the other and you need to keep following Christ. You don't need to despair that you will never have assurance of your faith. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. The Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we've asked of him. So it's possible to know that you have eternal life. It's possible to have the assurance that has so long eluded you and it's worth it to strive to attain it. Indeed, you should ask the Lord to help you to attain it. We have this confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So you ask him for this assurance. And I would say this just as a practical word to, the, to those who struggle with assurance. Go pick up J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. I picked it up myself last year after seeing Randall was reading it. And it's just been such a good book. But he's got a chapter in there, chapter 7, on, on assurance. And he... He makes the case. He, 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 it's, it's four parts to it. He basically says that it's possible to have assurance. It's a scriptural thing. He says a, a person can, may never arrive at assurance and still have real faith. But he gives some reasons why an assured hope is exceedingly to be desired. And then he finally, he says, he gives some causes why an assured hope is sometimes hard to attain. So I, practically, I would, I would advise you Go pick that up. Read that chapter. I think it's really helpful. But I'm going to leave you with these words from, from Bishop Ryle. He says this. 
He says, never, never let us curtail the freeness of the glorious gospel or clip its fair proportions. Never let us make the gate more straight and the way more narrow than pride and the love of sin have made it already. The Lord Jesus is very pitiful and tender of mercy. He does not regard the quantity of faith, but the quality. He does not measure its degree, but its truth. He will not break any bruised reed, nor quench any smoking flax. He will never let it be said that any perished at the foot of the cross. Him that cometh unto me, he says, I will in no wise cast out. Yes, though a man's faith be no bigger than a grain of mustard seed, if it only brings him to Christ and enables him to touch the hem of his garment, he shall be saved. Saved as surely as the oldest saint in paradise. Saved as completely and eternally as Peter or John or Paul. There are degrees in our sanctification. In our justification, there are none. What is written is written and shall never fail. Whosoever believeth on him, not whosoever hath a strong and mighty faith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of those here among your people who have believed on you would have full assurance of faith as they walk with you and seek you and that they will not be overcome by anxieties and worries and fears but will know that they have eternal life and that that knowledge will make them mighty and fearless warriors for Christ who love you and love your truth. I pray for those who are here who are sinning high-handedly and presuming themselves to be a Christian even though they are indifferent to you and your word and your ways. Father, I pray that you would help them to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith. And for the lost, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and save them. Expose the true nature of their predicament and let them repent and believe. And Father, for those who are here who are sinning like that and who are your children, I pray that you would afflict their conscience and not let up until they come back. And I pray that they would return to walking in the light and sweetness of fellowship with you. And Father, for all these things, we pray to do it in Jesus' name.